It's always an immense privilege that we should never underestimate to be able to come together and focus our hearts and our minds upon the inspired record that has been revealed to us from God himself. And this morning we do so by looking at a passage of scripture in 1 Peter chapter 1 under the heading, The Scarlet Thread of Redemption. Actually, I preached basically what I'm going to preach this morning in 2004. So I doubt if you will remember too much from that time. But the, one, the reason I wanted to preach this passage this morning is because of my father. I noticed on a note that dad was deeply moved by that exposition. And in the note, he said, you must preach this to the children. And so, because of his deep concern for primarily his children, his grandchildren, and so forth, and knowing that our children are being raised in such a, a pagan, Christ-hating culture, I think it would be good for me to preach from this passage this morning. So, conforming to his wishes, but more importantly, the promptings of the Holy Spirit. I wish to focus our attention on this passage under the heading, The Scarlet Thread of Redemption. Let me read it to you, 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. In this whole section of Scripture, Peter has been calling the saints to holiness, reminding them in verse 16 that you shall be holy, for I am holy, as God has said. And verse 17 is actually linked to, to uh, verses 13 through 16, where again he reminds us that the Christian's lifestyle should be radically different from non-believers that we have been transformed by the power of grace and we should therefore walk accordingly. And since judgment is inevitable, Christians should live in reverential awe of God. And in verse 18, he says, knowing that, it could be translated, for you know. It's a Greek participle that is grammatically subordinate to the command in verse 17, conduct yourselves. So he's literally saying, conduct yourselves in godliness, knowing that, or because you know what Christ has accomplished on your behalf, namely your redemption. 
And that's going to be our focus here. Verse 18, think of it now. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but, verse 19, with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The term redeemed is from the root latroo in the original language, and it means to be set free because a ransom has been paid. What a marvelous thought. It's a technical term, actually, and it was used in ancient Rome to denote uh, making a payment to free a slave from his or her bondage. In first century Rome, there were only three kinds of people. There were slaves, there were free men, and freed men. A freed man was one who was formerly a slave but had been redeemed. This is also described or the term is also used to describe buying back someone who was heading for judgment, particularly a prisoner of war. So, beloved, redemption is is at the very heart of Christianity. It's at the very heart of all that we believe, all that we hold dear, as those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's the core of salvation. Jesus is our Redeemer. One of my great Puritan mentors, Thomas Watson, said, Great was the work of creation, but greater the work of redemption. It cost more to to redeem us than to make us. In the one, there was but the speaking of a word. In the other, there was shedding of blood. The creation was but the work of God's fingers, redemption is the work of his arm. And it's sad to see how so many Christians today really don't talk much about redemption. You don't hear it preached about that much. Unfortunately, the gospel message has been shifted to prosperity theology or to social reform. And it's amazing to watch how quickly our country is moving towards an out-and-out ban of Christianity. I read an article the other day. The headline reads, Kentucky proposes regulations disqualifying Christians from adopting or fostering children. And I thought, well, here, here we go again. So I read the article. I'll quote you just a little of it. According to the Courier-Journal, quote, The state is proposing sweeping new regulations for private agencies that accept children who have experienced abuse or neglect that include rules against promoting any particular religion, ensuring a child's sexual orientation or gender identification is respected. The proposed regulations, the the report continues, subject to legislative review include detailed requirements that children not be forced to pray or attend religious services as well as protections for LGBTQ children. The article went on to say the regulations would also ban any, quote, programming, including religious teaching that would characterize LGBTQ as immoral, unnatural, unacceptable, or invalid while also requiring access to gender-affirming medical care by medical and mental health providers. 
That's where we've come, folks. Beloved, we are witnessing and we are experiencing the most profound satanic assault on the church of Jesus Christ in American history. Every vestige of virtue and biblical morality is under attack. And frankly, neither the Constitution nor the government can protect us. In fact, they are against us. The invisible forces of the kingdom of Satan are increasing their war against the kingdom of God, and our country is no longer free-falling into an abyss of gross immorality and sexual perversion, gender insanity, lawlessness, and so forth. Beloved, it is now the abyss itself. We are living in Sodom and Gomorrah. 81 million people voted for an administration that is hell-bent on legalizing the most vile forms of wickedness and criminalizing all that is pleasing to God. It's hard to believe. An administration that mocks the word of God and considers Christians to be bigots and haters. These are people who have no fear of God. No fear of judgment, no desire to know him, to worship him, to obey him. They prefer the word of man over the word of God. And sadly, much of evangelicalism is compromising to these very things. Others are constantly trying to moralize the immoral, trying to reform the unconverted, and obviously, these people refuse to be moralized because they live in the domain of darkness. They're spiritually dead. Never forget, dear friends, our, responsi our responsibility is not to moralize people, not to get people to put into place laws that make others be moral. Our responsibility is to convert people to the Lordship of Christ, to make disciples of all the nations, teaching them Jesus said to observe all that I have commanded. All you will do if you try to moralize those in bondage to Satan's domain, all you will do is just produce hypocrites who think they have now obligated God to somehow bless them, who think that now they are religious and so forth. Frankly, hell will be filled with as many moral people as immoral people. Because it is not our morality that saves us. It is the imputed righteousness and the shed blood of our Redeemer who said on the cross, it is finished. We cannot save ourselves. We must be redeemed. Redemption, what a powerful truth. What a magnificent reality for the redeemed. I remember singing as a child uh, Fanny Crosby's great hymn, you probably remember it. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through his infinite mercy. Redeemed and forever I am. But I want you to realize, especially you young people, that this whole theological concept of redemption is not just some abstract theological truth 
that you should hear from a pulpit, but you must understand that it is under attack by the enemy of our souls. In fact, Satan has cleverly counterfeited the central, the central truth of the gospel with a damning lie that is tearing our country apart today. And that is the lie of the false gospel of black liberation theology that fuels the movement Black Lives Matter. Reading from my book, Why America Hates Biblical Christianity, I say this, at a most basic level, black liberation theology believes Jesus is a savior to liberate black people from the bondage of white people, not from the bondage of sin. Jesus is not the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John 1.29. He was a revolutionary who sought to free his people from white Roman bondage. It's a theology that centers on victimhood and oppression. Salvation is all about equality and social justice. As a result, the mission of the church is to affect political change. It's essentially a religious version of Marxism. The experience of oppression is their authority, not scripture. It's a man-centered, not a God-centered theology, humanistic and pragmatic to the core. It's all about man and his needs, not God and his glory. So remember, what we're talking about here this morning is very timely. It is a magnificent truth that is under attack. And I want you to grab a hold of it with all of your heart and celebrate it, and defend it, and preach it, for it is the only truth that will save. Now let me remind you of the historical background from which Peter is drawing such vivid, vivid imagery about redemption. You will recall in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned, and their innocence was replaced with guilt and shame, and frantically they tried to soothe their guilty consciences by covering their nakedness with fig leaves. But they stood guilty before a holy God, covered only with the fig leaves of their own human effort. And so God cursed them. And then in Genesis 3.21 we read, And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now think about it, although Adam and Eve should have died, God was merciful and here we witness the genesis of divine grace spring into action. Here we see pictured the need for a substitute that needed to die to cover sin, a shadow of a coming redeemer who would one day make atonement for sinners like you and like me. And what's fascinating is that God himself provided that substitute. An innocent animal was killed, the first death after creation. And because of that sacrifice, God took that garment and covered their shame. An innocent substitute died in their place to pay a price to temporarily appease the justice of a holy God. And then we can look later on in Genesis chapter 22, and we see God giving a graphic il illustration of the need 
for an eventual perfect sacrifice to make atonement for sin, a lamb that only God would supply. And we see that in the story of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. There in verses 7 and 8 of Genesis 22, we read, Behold the fire and the wood, Isaac says, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And he did. And once again, we see the scarlet thread of redemption being woven through the tapestry of holy writ foreshadowing a future payment that, want, that must be paid once and for all. We can look later on in Scripture in Exodus 12 in the first 14 verses. Let me give you the context there. The background is one that comes out of Genesis. The patriarchs of Israel, especially Joseph now, he's been sold into slavery by his brothers. Uh, he later becomes... Uh, Prime Minister of Egypt alongside Pharaoh, which was Ramesses II. Then there was a severe famine in the land, and then his family, the family of Jacob, came to Egypt to survive. There were, there were 70 of them. Pharaoh gave them, um, gave them land for livestock, a place called Goshen. And in Exodus 1-7, we read, The sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. So there was explosive growth in the providence of God. You now have several million Jewish people, and they became a threat to the Egyptians. So the Egyptians made them into slaves. They forced them into labor, which made them more resolute and stronger. And after 400 years, God heard their cry. And, of course, Pharaoh wouldn't release them. So God brings the ten plagues. And the final plague, in that final plague, we once again see the scarlet thread of redemption. The firstborn animal and child of every family would be killed. Cataclysmic judgment. And several million Israelites were then released because of that. And you will recall the story, the army of the elite charioteers of Egypt were all drowned in the sea. But you will recall that in order, in order for God's covenant people to be spared from the death of the angel, an innocent lamb had to be slain. And its blood had to be placed on the doorposts and lintels. And here in First Peter, we once again see the need for an innocent lamb's life to be given as a substitute for the firstborn. God demanded a price to be paid to avoid justice. And that redemptive price was the price of a lamb. There's graphic imagery here pointing to the Lamb of God. What we know that in, in, in the time of Egypt, what they were required to do, and by the way, there are still Jewish people that do this today, they would take a lamb into their home two weeks ahead of time, 
They would live with it, all the while anticipating the horror of its death, all of that pointing to the need for salvation. They would love that little lamb and it would become a household pet. You know how children are when they have something little. Doesn't matter what it is, they all fall in love with it. Certainly a little lamb is no different. And eventually that little substitute would have to die in order for it to be the sacrifice to protect them from the angel of death. The price had to be paid and they would love that lamb and eventually they would place their weight upon that lamb as if it's bearing their sin and its little throat would be slit and it would die. That evening, the people gathered around the table, their sandals were on their feet, their loins were girded, they were ready to leave quickly, their staffs in their hand, they would eat hastily, and then they had to be ready to flee in the night because a divine assassination was about to take place. And in Exodus 12, we read, get them out quickly, lest we all die. So, beloved, the amazing act of redemption in that scenario was called Passover. And it was to be celebrated once every year to remind them that they were delivered, they were redeemed from the wrath of God through a lamb who died in their place to ransom them. And actually, this was at the very heart of the Old Testament sacrificial system, as you will recall. Even in the New Testament and life of Christ, millions of lambs were slain. And all of them pictured how a price needed to be paid to ransom sinners. And all of this, of course, foreshadowed the cross, where God provided a substitute for the purpose of redemption. And that's why we sing how we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. The wages of sin is death, both physically as well as spiritually. Likewise, the ransom paid that God required was death. The death of an innocent Lamb in Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus said, The Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. How thankful we can be. So redemption focuses on how salvation is achieved. It, it, it has to do with a purchase by payment of a price. And frankly, this is absolutely crucial for evangelism. You parents... You need to teach your children that a price had to be paid for their redemption. They need to understand these great truths. Focus on how God bought us from the bondage of sin through the price that was paid by the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, all of this views man's condition as a hopeless prisoner to his sin. And it reveals to us how God has to be the one to set the prisoner free because we cannot free ourselves. 
And that freedom required a ransom price to be paid. All sin must be punished. God's holiness and his justice demands it. Justice requires a price, and that price is the innocent death of the Lamb of God. Now, all of this is behind Peter's words here in our text. You were redeemed. Peter underscores three crucial concepts about our redemption. They're very humbling. They put salvation into perspective. And frankly, all three of these are essential to the gospel, essential to evangelism. Let me give them to you, and then we'll talk about them for a moment. First of all, we're going to see that we are redeemed from sin. Secondly, we are redeemed with the blood of Christ. And thirdly, we are redeemed by a glorious Savior. That's Peter's theme here. Now think about this. First of all, we are redeemed from sin. And he demonstrates this by describing four key concepts that help us understand what sin is. Now, it's interesting. You speak about sin in our culture today, and it's very offensive. People don't like to hear that. They think it's silly. They're convinced of their own goodness. But the truth is, man is so sinful when compared to a holy God that he is hopelessly doomed to divine judgment. Many people don't understand the concept of sin. People tend to mitigate both the seriousness and the consequences of sin. They're hopelessly biased in their evaluation of themselves. 1 John 3, 4 tells us that sin is lawlessness. Sin is ultimately rebellion against God's law. People resent his holy standard. They're unable to attain it, and they violate it, as we all have. Sin is actually man's innate inability to conform to the moral character and desires of God. I want you to notice four terms in this text that help us understand the nature of our sin. And you must understand this in order to appreciate your redemption. First of all, apart from redemption, man is in bondage to sin morally. If you go back to verse 14, he says, do not be conformed to the former lusts. Epithemia in the original language, the term for lusts, it speaks of a strong desire for an object, a longing of the heart in this context to do evil. In James 1 and verse 14, we read that man is carried away and enticed by his own lust. There it is. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And in Genesis chapter 6, in verse 5, we read how the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. This was at the time just prior to the flood. And he saw that every intent, which could be translated imagination, every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The reality is in the sinful recesses of the human heart, below the surface even of conscious thought, the unredeemed crave every imaginable form of evil. 
They're controlled by their lusts, ruled by their lusts. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life. And in the secret recesses of their thoughts, they live these things out. Their imaginations, their, their fantasies are hopelessly prone to selfishness, to immorality and so forth. So apart from redemption, Peter is telling us that man is in bondage to sin morally. Secondly, he is in bondage to sin mentally. Back to verse 14, he says, Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. You see, unredeemed man has no desire to honor God morally. But he has no ability to mentally discern what is truly pleasing to God. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, we read how a natural man, in other words, a man that has never been born again, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Why? Because he has a low IQ? No, it has nothing to do with that. It's because, the text goes on to say, they are spiritually appraised. Anachronitai in the original language, uh, a legal term. It, it speaks of a person that is incapable of rendering a decision because they cannot recognize the facts. And when you talk to unregenerate people about spiritual things, you will quickly see that for them, two plus two is always five or maybe six, or sometimes seven, but it's never four. It's ridiculous to try to moralize the unredeemed, isn't it? Romans 1 tells us that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, that their minds are worthless. They have no capacity to comprehend the character of God. Moreover, we see that they're in bondage to sin not only morally and mentally, but socially, look at verse 18. They were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life. Your futile way of life. Futile, it means vain, empty, worthless, pointless. A life that is going nowhere. How sad to watch people live out their life that way. You, know, you come to church on Sunday morning and you see... The guys with their bass boats heading for the lake or whatever. People that have no desire to know God, to live for God. Never think about judgment. But you see, apart from redemption, man's life is a God-forsaken spiritual wasteland. Think about it. All the great politicians and philosophers and architects and artists... All of the great military leaders, all of the athletes, all of the rock stars, they live and they die without ever contributing to the glory of God, the very purpose for which they were born. Their lives are eternally inconsequential. Solomon describes it simply, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. So, unredeemed man is in bondage to sin morally, mentally, socially, 
and finally spiritually. Again, in verse 18, Peter describes their feudal way of life. It says, inherited from your forefathers. Literally, your vain way of life handed down from your fathers. Speaking of religious tradition. In Peter's case, it was apostate Judaism. For Gentiles, it's idolatrous paganism, just mindless spirituality. Sometimes it's religious fervor, but ultimately they don't know Christ. They don't live for Christ. They have never been born again. They, they, they have no knowledge of the true God, no love for him. They do not know how to worship him in spirit and in truth. So what Peter is saying is that the unredeemed are in bondage to sin morally, mentally, socially, and spiritually. Everything about them are in rebellion to God, making them all worthy of eternal judgment. And beloved, were it not for our redemption, we would be amongst them. The unredeemed are prisoners in a dungeon of wickedness. And they love it so. They're utterly alienated from God, we read in Scripture. They're incapable of freeing themselves, not even capable of knowing they need to be freed. You will recall that in Ephesians 2.1, the unsaved are described as those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Paul goes on to describe them as those who quote, walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's a Hebrew expression that was used to describe the chief characteristic of man. And that chief characteristic is disobedience. People apart from Christ live according to the lusts of their flesh. They indulge the desires of the flesh and of the mind and by nature are children of wrath, headed inexorably towards a day of judgment. People are dead in their sins. They cannot extricate themselves from its tyranny. There is nothing more helpless than a corpse. Once man enjoyed sweet fellowship with God in the garden, but now he lives in the companions of fools and demons. There's not one faculty in man that, is, that sin has not defiled. It's like a deadly virus that attacks every aspect of our being. So unregenerate man just wanders aimlessly in the darkness that he loves. Some men love darkness more, and lo more than light because their deeds are evil. That's where they live. That's where they think. They're unable to comprehend the light. Unsaved people, because of sin, grope in the darkness of their own wickedness. And they fall over things in that darkness. In like, it's like a drunken stupor. stupor. They, they repeat their folly like a dog that returns to its vomit. And one thing that we learn from history, someone has once said, is that we never learn from history, right? Now some of you might say, Pastor, you, you're way too hard here on, on sinners. 
I mean, man is not that evil. Well, frankly, those are the words of a person that has no grasp of the holiness of God. He's so exceedingly more holy than we could ever imagine. By comparison to him, all our righteous deeds are like filthy garments, Isaiah 64 and verse 6. I, I might say kindly but forthrightly, those of you who doubt God's depiction of depravity, those of you who think that this is a little bit over the top, that people aren't really that sinful, I wish you could spend just one week in my study. I wish for one week you could hear the tortured souls of people who agonize over issues in their life because of either their sin or the sins of someone else. I wish you could listen to the sobs of, of grieving mothers and fathers over the sins of their children. I wish you could watch grown men drop to their knees in agony of soul as they talk about how their wife has left them. I wish you could hear parents agonize over the discovery of sexual abuse. I wish you could hear the cries of a homosexual who has just been diagnosed with AIDS. I wish you could plead with an angry dying man to repent and trust in Christ as he breathes his last breath and before he slips into the tortures of hell he growls at you and you tell me that sin is not what God says it is oh dear friends it is that and it is far more than you can imagine God has made it clear for example in Romans 3 that unredeemed man does not understand or seek after God he's useless what comes from his mouth stinks like an open grave that he is a liar he's full of poison cursing bitterness his feet are swift to shed blood he's filled with destruction and misery he has no fear of God before his eyes this is the dreadful bondage of sin from which we must be redeemed so we are redeemed from sin secondly we are redeemed with the blood of Christ Go back to verse 18. He says, not with silver or gold. In other words, not with some perishable commodity, some decaying product. He's basically saying that there is nothing on earth that can pay this ransom. Silver and gold may be precious on earth, but they cannot purchase a soul. All they can do is weigh us down to perdition. Friends, there is no price that can be paid apart from Christ. There is no price that can be placed upon the eternal soul of a man. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26, for what will it be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The point is there's nothing he can offer. It must always be a work of divine grace. And beloved, we have been redeemed, according to verse 19, with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. 
Blood, by the way, in, in, this, in Scripture is always a vivid way of depicting death. And here it speaks of the death of the perfect, spotless, precious lamb that was required as payment. Spurgeon reminds us of the words found in Hebrews 9.22, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. He says, quote, Indeed, there is no true remission without the blood of propitiation. Propitiation, by the way, means a satisfaction or appeasement, uh, placation. God's holy wrath cannot be appeased or placated or satisfied apart from a perfect sacrifice. So he says, there is no true remission without the blood of propitiation. Never, though you strained yourself in prayer, never, though you wept yourself away in tears, never, though you groaned and cried till your heartstrings break, never in this world, nor in that which is to come, can the forgiveness of sins be procured on any other ground than redemption by the blood of Christ, and never can the conscience be cleansed but by faith in that sacrifice. The fact is, he went on to say, Beloved, there is no use for you to satisfy your hearts with anything less than what satisfied God the Father. Without the shedding of blood, nothing would appease his justice. And without the application of that same blood, nothing can purge your consciences. He's absolutely right. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, referring to mourning over their sin, for they shall be comforted. There is no balm that can soothe a sin-sick soul like Jesus. So we're redeemed from sin, we are redeemed with the blood of Christ, and finally Peter reminds us that we're redeemed by a glorious Savior. And here we are reminded once again of the excellencies of Christ, the glorious attributes of our, of our Lord and Savior who gave himself to satisfy the justice of God. Notice what Peter says about Christ. This is so wonderful. In verse 20, for he was foreknown, prognosco in the original language, um, he, he says he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. The term as well as the context implies predestination. God planned our redemption before the foundation of the world. He predestined that Jesus, our Redeemer, would come and rescue us from sin. You know, there's so much to say here. I... I can only touch on this lightly, like the wings of a, of a swallow that, that just, you've seen them, they'll dive down and they'll just lightly touch the surface of a lake and then they'll quickly ascend upward. That's what I have to do here with this great theological truth. But hopefully the wings of my words can impart at least a, a slight but, but, but refreshing and exhilarating understanding of this truth. Beloved, Jesus, our Redeemer, was the predestined one. Before creation, before time began, according to Titus 1-2 and 2 Timothy 1-9, he was ordained to redeem sinners like you and me, which obviously meant he was a member of the Trinity. Before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed, 
for those whom he was about to redeem. Here's what he said in John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me. Isn't it amazing to know that we were given to Christ, to the Father, before we were even created? Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. Now catch this, for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. What a staggering testimony to the sovereignty of Almighty God to say that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, that he was predestined for the work of redemption. Notice, secondly, he was incarnated it says in verse 20, but has appeared in these last times. Now, here he's not referring to a mortal man who ascended to deity, but he's referring to the, the pre-incarnate Christ, the second member of the triune Godhead that appeared in these last times. So he was not only predestined, but he was incarnated. Phonereo, it means to, to, uh, to make plain, to make clear, uh, to, to manifest or to reveal. Think about it. He was chosen in eternity and revealed in time. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He appeared through the virgin birth. This was the ransom lamb that was predestined and incarnated. And thirdly, he was resurrected. Notice verse 21. God raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Think about it. Unlike all the tombs of man-made gods, the tomb of Jesus is empty. Our Redeemer lives. His resurrection was a divine, a divine affirmation of his sacrifice, that his sacrifice truly and perfectly appeased the justice of God. The ransom price was paid in full. But God not only raised him from the dead, he, Peter says, he gave him glory. This is a reference to the ascension. Now he is seated at the right hand of the Father as our advocate. Beloved, this is what is symbolized in communion when we come to the Lord's table. And this is why Christians rejoice. If I can summarize it again, think of this. We have been redeemed by the predestined, incarnated, risen, ascended Christ. And he did this, Peter says at the end of verse 20, for the sake of you. In other words, for all of us. And this is amazing. And notice what our redemption produces in verse 21, who through him are believers in God. In other words, it's because of the work of Christ that we become believers in God and not just any God, the true God of the Bible. We have been reconciled to him, verse 21, so that your faith and your hope are in God. You know, all the time you hear about, oh, so-and-so was a person of faith. In fact, I had, on several occasions, people say about my father, oh yeah, boy, your, your dad was really a man of faith. And I, I would very kindly correct them, well, if, 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 if you will indulge me, it, 
he wasn't just a man of faith. There are a lot of people that are people of faith. You hear that all the time. He was a man of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, hell will be filled with people of faith. The issue is not faith. The issue is the object of your faith. Is Jesus your Redeemer? And if the answer is no, then your faith is useless. Well, perhaps now we can better understand Peter's doxology of praise. I love this passage. In chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, let me read this to you as we close this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Beloved, remember these great truths when you present the gospel, especially with your children. They need to understand that because of sin, they have offended the holiness of God they have broken his law. Tell them not only about sin, but about substitution. That there had to be a ransom price paid to God by Christ on their behalf. And talk about submission. That if you confess your sin and bow before Jesus, he will give you the gift of salvation. Oh, child of God, let's all celebrate our redemption Paul said in Ephesians 1, 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. What a great reality. This is not something we hope for, but something we have right now. We have been freed from the bondage of sin. We are no longer under condemnation. Moreover, we're not merely spectators of this glorious truth. We are recipients of it experientially, aren't we? It is within our mind's grasp because we possess it within our soul. We, we can experience these things subjectively because His Spirit bears witness, witness with our spirit that we are redeemed. Well, I noticed in my old notes of 2004, I closed much of what I have shared with you this morning with a poem that I wrote, and I'll do that again today. Once in sin's dread bondage I lay, never a thought there would come a day when the wages of sin would be called to account and my Creator would judge me. 
my sins to recount. Dead and blind and shackled to sin, driven by lust and rebellion within, I groped in the darkness and hated the light, scoffed at the gospel and sinned with delight. Without desire to follow the Christ and not understanding his sacrifice, I wandered along until one day my my conscience screamed out, my sin I must pay. Then by the Spirit's irresistible power, repentance came forth in that glorious hour. The bondage was broken. His misery I'd found. His mercy I'd found. My ransom was paid by the blood of the Lamb. And now I rejoice for in eternity past. Our Redeemer was planned in sovereignty's cast. The incarnate Lord Jesus would come and redeemed. Oh, what a glorious Savior and King. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths. They minister to our souls in way nothing else can because by the power of your Spirit we know they are true and they humble us to not only proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ but to be obedient to your will to the praise of his glory and that we might enjoy the fullness of all that is ours in Christ this side of heaven so Lord take these eternal truths impress them upon our heart in such a way that they become the theme of our song the theme of our conversations the theme of our thoughts And may we all be faithful to proclaim those, to proclaim these things to those who are lost. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.